Professor Kotler, thank you so much for being here. You've been a, a great inspiration to me throughout my whole life and legal career. Uh, you've done so much in your career. You uh, were a member of parliament from 1999 to 2015. You're a minister of justice from 2003 to 2006. Um, you are currently the chair of the Roll Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. You are known as a leader in human rights uh, throughout the world, and you've done so much. Uh, simply saying you've been an inspiration to me would be uh, really not doing you justice because you've not only been an inspiration, but you've uh, actually provided or facilitated providing people physical freedom, which is the ultimate gift. I'm curious to know about your background. Where did you get such a strong moral compass? And when did you know you wanted to pursue a career in law or human rights for that matter? Actually, I think uh, both those questions go back uh, to the teachings of my parents of, of blessed memory. Uh, it was my father who taught me at a very young age when I really uh, couldn't fully appreciate the profundity of the message, but he would, you know, repeat it over the years. And the moral compass message, in effect, was that uh, the pursuit of justice and he would also use the Hebrew, tzedek, 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 the pursuit of justice, he said, is equal to all the other commandments combined. He said, this is what you must teach unto your children. He said, this must be your life's credo, in effect, your moral compass. But I have to say that uh, when my mother would hear my father uh, sharing this message uh, with me, um, over the years, she also imparted her own message which was that if you want to pursue justice, you have to understand, you have to feel the injustice about you. You have to go in and about your community and beyond and feel the injustice and combat the injustice. Otherwise, as she put it, the pursuit of justice will be a theoretical abstraction. So I suspect that as a result of the teaching of my parents, which was uh, buttressed by when I was in Jewish day school, uh, two of my teachers were Holocaust survivors. They didn't speak early about this, but over a period of time, uh, they shared uh, their stories. And I think that also had that, you know, connectivity back to my parents' uh, message. Uh, when you're exposed to horror, horrors too terrible to be believed, but not too terrible to have happened. And, and the thing that I always, feel from whether we're talking about the Holocaust or the genocides uh, that followed, whether it be in Rwanda or Darfur, or more recently with the uh, Rohingya and the Uyghurs, that what makes the Holocaust and the genocide that followed so unspeakable, and not only the horrors of the genocides themselves, that would be bad enough. What makes them so unspeakable is that they were preventable. Nobody could say we did not know. We knew, but we did not act. And I mentioned the Uyghurs uh, because we know now and we're still not acting. So I think the moral compass uh, goes back early teachings of my parents, Jewish day schools. And I have to also say that when I was in, in high school, uh, the person who taught me the secular studies program, he taught all the secular studies, was uh, Irving Layton, uh, the poet. Uh, therefore, to this day, I know nothing about physics, chemistry, and math, because he taught the whole secular uh, studies program. Uh, 
but he embodied in him really almost the the personality of a kind of Jeremiah. He almost looked like one with a thought Jeremiah. And he always railed against injustice and always implored us to pursue justice. So the remarkable thing was that Irving Layton was taking me back uh, to the messages of both my uh, parents. And then in my father's friendship circle, and with this I'll close, included people like uh, David Lewis, my father, himself was a lawyer. I, I like to say more a, a jurist uh, than, than a, a lawyer. Uh, he would always uh, read to me from the great uh, jurists of the day. So he was the personification of a jurist in the best sense. And his friends were people like David Lewis, who went on to uh, head up the New Democratic Party, A.M. Uh, Klein, a great Canadian uh, poet, Frank Scott, who taught my father at McGill Law School and uh, who eventually taught me. Um, and so there was a lot of this uh, camaraderie and I think that was brought everything together. Wow, unbelievable. And, and uh, your journey into law, was that uh, following in your father's footsteps or did you know back then that law was a good way to make a difference in the, in the world of human rights? I think the juxtaposition of my father's message and my parents' messages about pursuing justice and combating injustice, my father being a lawyer, those of his friends uh, like David Lewis and others also being lawyers, but who all had a passion for justice, uh, led me to believe that the way to pursue justice would be to do it uh, through the law. And so I learned early on that this could be a, a pathway to justice. And so by the time I was in uh, high school, I already knew that this is what I wanted to do. Well, uh, inspirational. And I say that because I also studied law, uh, partially like you to uh, try to make a difference and help people. Um, and I still want to do that. But I find myself doing, uh, you know, real estate closings and estate planning instead. So I'm wondering, what was your first job in law? Did you go straight into the human rights field or did you have some private practice experience at all? Well, I, um, after I graduated McGill Law School, I did a graduate work at uh, Yale Law School. And I actually was on my way, uh, having done the LLM to a doctorate when uh, <clears throat> Perry Elliott Trudeau was elected in 1968 prime minister. And there was a feeling of hope at the time at Camelot, to use that metaphor, was in the air. And uh, I remember writing a letter to the newly appointed Minister of Justice, John Turner, whom I did not know. And I basically wrote him a letter saying, you know, I'm, I'm here at Yale, I'm, I'm doing my PhD, but I'm getting somewhat intellectually hydrated uh, here in the library and the like. I really would like to get involved in issues relating to uh, law reform, uh, human rights, poverty law, as I learned it at, at, at Yale. And he invited me uh, to an interview and a week later uh, invited me to work with him. And so my first job was uh, with John Turner when he was Minister of Justice. And the great thing about that experience is that it exposed me both to uh, the importance of parliament uh, and and notion of, of uh, parliament as a place where decisions take place and that parliamentarians are the trustees of the people. And he was not only a 
consummate parliamentarian uh, Turner as uh, Minister of Justice. He took Parliament very seriously, but he was a consummate Democrat. He taught me all the time that you know democracies don't happen by accident and they don't continue. That you have to work at democracy and Parliament has to work at democracy. And as Minister of Justice, he gave me a lot of scope to be involved in uh, areas of uh, criminal justice uh, reform, uh, judicial uh, reform. Uh, we established institutional reforms through the Federal Court of Canada and uh, Law Reform uh, Commission of Canada. But he was also very involved in uh, issues that today have become uh, maybe much more uh, commonplace. But he was a real environmentalist. And, and environmental protection for him was, was crucial. So it was one of the pillars of the work that we were in, in, involved in. Human rights was crucial. And so we embarked then on what ultimately was to become the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. He cared a lot about law for the poor. And through that, uh, we worked together on establishing a neighborhood legal services system, which we borrowed from uh, Yale Law School, my clinical experiences there. So uh, the timing was perfect. Uh, the person whom I was working for, John Turner, uh, could not have been a better mentor and a better role model uh, about what it means to be a minister of justice, uh, a, parliament, a parliamentarian, a democratic. And interestingly enough, uh, when I became uh, minister of justice and attorney general myself years later, uh, some 40 years after that experience, I have to say that I had that role model uh, in mind. And luckily enough, it was my first job. Wow, that's, in, that's really incredible. And uh... You know, one job and one experience can really propel a whole career forward. Uh, beautiful to, to see and hear. I mean, we can, we can pause at the 70s and 80s and even 90s, but if you want, you can touch upon those decades or we can go into your years of, uh, as Minister of Justice and as a parliamentarian. Um, I'm curious to know back then what were the big issues on the table and, and what uh, maybe accomplishments are you proud of during those years? And what are you perhaps disappointed in? Yeah, the uh, two issues that engaged me most were the two great human rights struggles of the second half of the 20th century. Interestingly enough, I started to be involved with them when I was uh, still a, a law student. I'm, I'm speaking now about the struggle for human rights in the former Soviet Union, and within that, the struggle for Soviet jury, and the struggle against apartheid. And uh, with respect to those two struggles, I got involved with the two people who were uh, the voice, uh, the, the vision, the hope, the identity of those struggles. Uh, Anatoly Sharansky, as he then was in the former Soviet Union, and Nelson Mandela in South Africa. And, and in fact, my involvement in the Sharansky case allowed me to develop then what became the advocacy model that I use to the present day with respect to defending political prisoners. Sure, with the refinements over time, but the basic framework was set at that time uh, in my involvement uh, with those two cases. What, what was the framework? Can you go into that? Yeah, the framework was basically, uh, number one, a lesson that I learned uh, when I was in the Soviet Union from the person who was uh, regarded as the father of the modern dissident movement, uh, Andrei Sakharov, became also a 
political prisoner, was very close with uh, Sharansky. And he would begin by saying uh, the importance of the mobilization of shame against the human rights violator. He would say that the Soviet Union is preoccupied with its legitimacy. Therefore, we have to unmask and expose their human rights violations. And the best way to do so was to do so through uh, legal representations and, and public advocacy uh, related thereto. And so I drew up a, a legal brief in, in that regard, uh, which sought to expose and unmask the Soviet Union's violations of its own law, not Canadian law or American, but of its own law and of its violations of international uh, treaties along the lines of what Sakharov uh, would say. And then there were other things to involve uh, the parla parliaments. And uh, here too, I, I have to say that, or let me even take it back a step further, as you invoke your own government. And so uh, the Canadian government at the time when I took up the Sharansky case was led by Perriel Trudeau. And uh, I went to him with Avital Sharansky and I presented him the 800-page legal brief that I had uh, developed with regard to Sharansky's case and cause, and I asked him if he would uh, help facilitate the delivery of that brief to the Soviet Union and help support and take up Sharansky's case and cause. And I still remember his words to me. Uh, we were meeting with him on a Friday, um, and I think Avital Sharansky made a very compelling case in that discussion with him. And then he said to me, okay, Kotler, I'll take the brief home for the weekend. I'll read it. Uh, if it's good, you'll have my uh, <clears throat> support on Monday morning. But if it's lousy, I'm going to kick your ass in for wasting my weekend. And so on Monday morning, he got in touch with Avi Talstransky and myself, and he said, one, that he had already instructed uh, his <clears throat> people to have the legal brief formally conveyed and served on the Soviet embassy in Ottawa. Two, that he had arranged for a press conference for us uh, to take place uh, in Parliament and thereby giving uh, the imprimatur of both government and Parliament for our work. And number three, that he had already made representations uh, to the leaders of the Soviet Union, in particular with regard to their violations of the uh, Helsinki Final Act. So that involvement was very important. Now, to tell you about the bipartisan nature of the involvement is that a, a year later, uh, the Trudeau government was defeated by the conservative government, progressive conservative under Joe Clark. Uh, Joe Clark took up exactly where Trudeau left off, and he helped to uh, facilitate my appearance before a Soviet court uh, to defend Sharansky. I won't go into the whole thing there other than to say that a day before I was to appear before the Soviet court in an arrangement agreed upon uh, with the Canadian uh, government, uh, I was uh, arrested, uh, detained, and uh, expelled from the uh, Soviet Union. And I, and I was brought out to a Soviet officials brought me out to the Soviet tarmac when they were expelling me to a Japanese airliner, which fortunately was going to London and not to the Far East. And I was boarded onto the airline to the surprise of the Japanese uh, attendants who asked me, they said, you're boarding pass, sir. I said, I'm sorry, I've been boarded in unusual circumstances. And I pointed to the cagey 
feed people. And I said, look, uh, I'm, I'm being expelled. I, gave them, I asked them two things very quickly. I said, could you convey to the Canadian embassy in Moscow that I'm being expelled? And can you call Dan Fisher, the Moscow correspondent for Los Angeles Times, and tell him I won't be able to make it for dinner? Uh, so I had a dinner meeting with him on the Sharansky case, as it was. Uh, what happened, and it tells you about the importance and the role of the media, uh, is that Dan Fisher broke the story. And it was front page news all over the world. Nobody knew who I was, but Sharansky's case was a co-celeb at the time. And so everybody knew who Sharansky was. And all the headlines were, you know, Sharansky's lawyer arrested, Sharansky's lawyer expelled from the Soviet Union. Uh, I have to tell you that on the trip from uh, Moscow to London, I was... It was a very difficult trip because I worried about those who had been left behind. All my documentation had been seized, all the list of witnesses uh, whose testimony I wanted to share before the court, all that was taken. And I was very worried that there were going to be consequences for those uh, who had been left uh, behind. And when I arrived in London, I quickly uh, called my wife. I only had been married at that time for three months. And I said, I realized that uh, don't tell anyone you know, I've been expelled from the Soviet Union, I'm here in, in London. And then she said, what do you mean don't tell anyone? It's all over the news, as I had meant. And then she said, by the way, there are Canadian officials looking for you uh, in the airport. What happened is that the Canadian government uh, was really, to use their words, outraged by the Soviets' expulsion of me, and they arranged a press conference for me in the Canadian High Commission in London uh, so that I could tell my story because the Soviets were saying that I, I was a spy who came to the Soviet Union on behalf of another spy, uh, Anatoly Sharansky, and that I was uh, consorting with hooligans, meaning Andrei Sakharov, etc. So they organized a press conference, but the most important thing with this, I'll end on this, when I flew back to Canada, the then uh, foreign minister, Flora MacDonald, in an important symbolic move, met me at the airport and then announced that Canada was suspending all bilateral Helsinki agreements with the Soviet Union because of their imprisonment of Sharansky and uh, the expulsion of his lawyer. So it, it showed you that governments acting on principle and enacting policy, and that to me was very encouraging. So this notion of invoking uh, the support of your own government was an important dimension, invoking a parliamentary support to this day the Canadian Parliamentary Group for uh, Sharansky and for Soviet Union is the largest that has ever been uh, organized on behalf of any political prisoner or on behalf of any cause. And it was done uh, at the time. Um, and there were other things that I learned, the importance of the media using the Dan Fisher example uh, to internationalize uh, the advocacy, to get other governments and uh, parliaments uh, involved. Uh, to create a, a critical mass of, of advocacy. And so we involved uh, women's groups, the 35s, as they were called at the time, uh, student movements, uh, lawyers. This was a quintessential uh, intersectional movement, to use that term that we use today, uh, because you, you had involved uh, students and lawyers and scientists and artists and, and, and women and really a critical mass of advocacy in that international and that advocacy was internationalized and we invoked international legal remedies which were only beginning at the time today there's a, a full slate of them 
but whatever uh, did exist, we engaged with at the time. So there was this advocacy model developed then. And just to close on this, because a very interesting thing occurred about a year after Sharansky was released, I found myself on a panel with uh, Gorbachev, uh, leader of the Soviet Union. And I always wondered, you know, what role Gorbachev had played because Sharansky was released uh, within the year that Gorbachev had become a president of the Soviet Union and he had been in prison for you know, eight and a half years before that. And so I asked Gorbachev, you know, uh, what role did he have in Sharansky's release? And he told me a fascinating story which dovetails with the advocacy model. He said, you know, he said, um, when I was in the Soviet Union before I became president, I was the Secretary of Agriculture. He said, you may not believe this. He said, I never heard of Anatoly Sharansky. He said, I know he was, uh, as I say, a co-celeb. I never heard of him in my role. My first trip outside the Soviet Union was to Canada, to the Canadian Parliament. And uh, as a Minister of Agriculture from the Soviet Union, I appeared before the Canadian Parliamentary Committee on Agriculture. He said, yes, they asked me a few questions on agriculture. He said, then they started to ask me questions about this Sharansky. He said, when I left the parliamentary hearing, uh, left the parliamentary building, there was this gigantic demonstration on behalf of this Sharansky. He said, then I was being hosted over the weekend by Eugene Whalen, your, your minister of agriculture at the time. He said, yes, we discussed agriculture, but he kept bringing up the Sharansky case. He said, well, a year later, I became president of the Soviet Union, so I ordered up this file, this file of Sharansky. And he said, I read it. He said, yes, he was a, a troublemaker. He said, but he wasn't a criminal. And then he added the key words, he says, but it was costing us. It was costing us diplomatically. It was costing us economically. It was costing us politically to keep him in prison. So I ordered his release in our self-interest. And that for me was the other part of the advocacy model, what I called the tipping point. You can make the case on the basis of the injustice, but what will get these authoritarians to move is when they realize it's in their self-interest to release the political prisoner. Really unbelievable. Uh, both such success stories, uh, Natan Sharansky and Nelson Mandela, uh, two happy endings, and you should be extremely proud of yourself. I know I would be if you contributed towards uh, their freedom and their influence on the world post-freedom. Uh, they were both, uh, I mean, uh, Natan Sharansky is still an amazing leader and, and Mandela was. So to have contributed to that in a way is, is really a great accomplishment. Uh, on, on the flip side of that, you talk about the receptiveness of the parliament and the media to those cases. Have you found throughout your career and as a, a parliamentarian as well, that some of your complaints about human rights violations have fallen on deaf ears? Uh, Yes, the, uh, when I was a parliamentarian, I, that's why I use the term uh, the uh, golden years, the time of the struggle for Soviet jury, when there was this uh, unity, government, parliament, civil society, uh, legal advocacy, um, the convergence of uh, public advocacy in the pursuit of a just cause. When I became a parliamentarian, uh, interestingly enough, uh, not long after I became a parliamentarian, I was asked to take up the case of Professor Kunlun Zhang. Kunlun Zhang, as it happened, had been a, an academic colleague of mine at McGill University, but he was also a Falun Gong practitioner. And he had gone to China 
And when he was in China, he was engaged in some of the exercises of this spiritual meditation movement, the Falun Gong, and he was arrested and he was tortured uh, in detention. And uh, the Falun Gong movement in Canada uh, approached me to take up his case and, and cause. You know, if you're a corporate lawyer and you're known to being uh, involved in corporate law, you'll get clients who'll come to you as a corporate lawyer. I had had my involvement then in uh, political prisoners, Sharansky, Mandela, and also they came to me with regard to now a Chinese uh, Canadian political prisoner. And so I took up his cause and sought to invoke the advocacy model. And as you may have uh, you know, intimated, maybe not knowingly, uh, I did not get a, a positive response. Why? Because the government at that time uh, was very interested in trade relations with China, uh, in developing you know, uh, commercial relationships with China, and the Canadian government was about to embark on a trade mission to China. And so uh, they advised me not to take up the case. What I'm sharing with you actually became public in the media at the time. And I, I said, I don't see the contradiction between trade and, and human rights. There's no reason why you can't go on a trade mission and still take up the case uh, of Kunlun Zhang and human rights while on the mission. But that uh, did, did not have uh, positive resonance, I have to say. And so I, I called a press conference uh, and brought all representatives from all the parties together and ratcheted up uh, uh, the advocacy. Well, to sum it up, uh, with that intensive parliamentary advocacy, though not necessarily with the government's support, uh, Kunlun Zhang was released. But that's the good news. The not so good news is that the series of political prisoners uh, in China whose cases and causes I took up thereafter uh, are for the most part still in prison in China. Uh, I took up the case in 2002 of Dr. Wang uh, Bezang. Um, he had been a graduate of McGill University. He got a doctorate in medicine from McGill, but then decided, you know, it'd be nice to practice medicine but democracy in China is more important. And so he established the overseas China democracy movement. Fast forward to 2002, because he had graduated from uh, McGill's PhD in 1982, it's 20 years later. And he's in Vietnam, Chinese authorities abduct him from Vietnam, bring him back uh, to China in a sham trial, uh, convict him of both uh, the absurd charges of terrorism and treason, and sentenced him to life imprisonment in solitary confinement, during which period he suffered a series of debilitating uh, strokes. And just uh, two days ago, I addressed the Canadian Law Students Association uh, meeting and highlighted, uh, among other things, his, his case and cause. And there are several others. There's a, a Uyghur uh, Canadian, Hussein Jalil. Similarly, 2006, uh, brought to China, uh, and since then charged, sham trial has effectively uh, disappeared. And so we've been taking up this case and cause. You've got the two Michaels now in prison in the hostage uh, diplomacy. So it isn't as easy as it was in the, if you might call it the bipolar world then of the Cold War, one might say, 
uh, when uh, the Soviet Union was seen as the common enemy, uh, the democracies were more uh, united and uh, we were able to effectively make uh, the case uh, as I shared it with you. It has not been as, uh, <clears throat> at, at this point, as effective when you have a situation where you have uh, what I call today a global political pandemic, which we've had for some time of a resurgent global authoritarianism, the backsliding of democracies, the assault on human rights and political prisoners increasingly as looking glasses into uh, this resurgent global authoritarianism and violations of human rights. Yeah, in, in a sense, we have gone backwards. I'm curious now, uh, fast forwarding, you're uh, opened and you're the chair of the role Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. You're no longer in Canadian government. In your eyes, what are the biggest human rights violations or human rights violators uh, today, 2021? What are the big issues on your table? Yeah, um, let me share with you the sort of the five issues on our table. Um, it's within the context of what I said, the global uh, political pandemic um, and political prisoners as a looking glass into it. The first I would say is Xi Jinping's China. And I use that term to distinguish it from the people and publics in China who are otherwise uh, the targets of the mass repression of the CCP, the uh, Chinese Communist uh, Party, where they have targeted what they call the five poisons. By the five poisons, I'm referring to uh, the targeting of the Uyghurs, the mass atrocities against the Uyghurs, the uh, frontal assault on the rule of law in Hong Kong, where they've been imprisoning not only uh, leaders of the democracy movement, but effectively uh, assaulting democracy itself. The third has been uh, the persecution and prosecution of the Falun Gong. We're now in the 22nd year of what the CCP itself has called uh, the eradication campaign against uh, the Falun Gong, effectively criminalizing what is a spiritual exercise meditation movement. The fourth is the uh, massive repression against Tibetans and the fifth is the menacing of Taiwan. But it doesn't end there. Uh, China, and it's not all that well known, uh, now jails more journalists than any other country in the world. And it was this suppression of information, uh, this arresting and disappearing of uh, media people and uh, doctors and dissidents that resulted uh, effectively in the suppression of information which precipitated uh, the spread of the coronavirus, which China then sought to blame on others. And we're witnessing and experiencing the after effects to this day. You also have uh, the uh, targeting of uh, Uyghurs, Falun Gong, and others for the illegal and forced harvesting of their organs which a, a human rights tribunal in China under Sir, Jeff, Sir Jeffrey Nice uh, said these were effectively uh, crimes against uh, humanity. And so you take all of these things together, it's why I say that China has emerged as the greatest threat to the rules-based uh, international order and the most horrific uh, of that culture of 
corruption and criminality and the impunity that underpins it is really uh, the, tar the mass atrocities targeting the Uyghurs, which effectively uh, constitute uh, acts of genocide as the Canadian parliament uh, determined and became the first parliament internationally to do so. So that's the first uh, threat that we're involved in. And as I say, involved both in combating uh, that uh, global authoritarianism emanating from China and through political prisoner, the defense of political prisoners in that regard. The, the second is, uh, and again, I use the term Khamenei's Iran to distinguish it here too from the people and publics of Iran. They're too the targets of mass repression. Now, in 2008, December 2008, our Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights published a report called Rights Over uh, Repression in Iran, uh, where we sought to both document the uh, repression, the targeting of the major civil society groups uh, in Iran, and identified the major, as we call them, architects of repression engaged uh, in that. Um, I have to say, regrettably, that in uh, some <clears throat> 26 months later, the situation has only worsened, the repression has intensified. I'm referring uh, to the uh, targeting of, of women and the women's rights movement, which has emerged as a leading human rights movement in Iran as a whole. Uh, the targeting of environmentalists, where environmental protection, which is in the interest of Iran, has been made a crime. Uh, the targeting of uh, the Baha'i, uh, not only targeting them for religious persecution, but outrageously recently, from a legal point of view, two court cases which authorized, in effect, the illegal confiscation of the property of Baha'i in the village of Evel, where they've lived you know, uh, for uh, over a hundred years, and justified it on the grounds that the Baha'i are a heretical sect. Uh, in other words, there's no shame. They were in fact, acknowledging that they were illegally confiscating this by judicial orders, the property of the Baha'i because they regarded them as a critical heretical uh, sect. Uh, I, I can go on in terms of uh, the situation with regard to uh, Iran. You have also the increasing targeting of dual nationals. Uh, again, a form of hostage diplomacy, but as we're speaking, they have. Uh, recently imprisoned and convicted a dual Canadian-Iranian national, uh, someone who got his PhD from McGill University, who was a student of mine, uh, who went back to Iran, who became a professor of law and human rights, in particular environmental law, and he has now been uh, sentenced to seven years in prison, and the, the, the contempt of Iran uh, is demonstrated in the fact that almost on the same day that Canada led 58 countries in adopting the first ever declaration against arbitrary detention in state-to-state -state relations, i.e. the first uh, declaration regarding the imprisonment of dual nationals, Iran imprisons a Canadian-Iranian dual national. So you really see this relentless assault on human rights 
uh, in Iran, all of which is personified uh, in the case and cause of Nasreen Sutadeh, the heroic woman human rights lawyer in Iran who embodies the struggle for human rights in Iran, whose persecution and prosecution over the years has been emblematic of the criminalization of fundamental freedoms uh, in Iran, uh, a lawyer who has gone down the line uh, for women uh, targeted <coughs> for uh, abuse and violation, gone down the line for juveniles destined for execution, down the line for journalists whose freedom of expression has been silenced, down the line for environmentalists uh, whose environmental protection has been made a crime, down the line for other lawyers who, when they defended these political prisoners, were themselves in prison, down the line for other political prisoners, until she, two years ago, became yet again a political prisoner, convicted and sentenced to 38 years in prison and 148 lashes, a virtual death sentence for a woman in her late uh, 50s, and where the charges are so absurd uh, in the sense that for obeying the Iranian constitution in terms of their protections for peaceful protest or for uh, freedom of expression, uh, she was charged with seven different offenses that comprised, as I said, those 38 years in prison. So we have been uh, advocating on her behalf and her case as a looking glass into all these uh, violations. Another uh, concern that preoccupies us has been uh, Maduro's uh, Venezuela. Now, uh, some four years ago, I became a member of a uh, what was called an independent panel of legal experts established by the Organization of American States to look into whether there are reasonable grounds to believe that uh, crimes against humanity were being committed in Venezuela. After uh, an exhaustive uh, <clears throat> inquiry, both with documentary evidence, witness testimony, and the like, we determined that there were seven major crimes against humanity being committed in Venezuela. Uh, from multiple murders, uh, thousands of extrajudicial executions, some of the most egregious cases of torture that one can imagine, uh, the targeting of detainees for rape and sexual uh, violence, uh, persecuting people on the basis of the fact of their uh, political uh, identity, disappearing uh, others, and perhaps uh, the worst of, of, of the crimes being state-orchestrated humanitarian suffering, the weaponization of food and medicine, such that we have appalling cases of infant and maternal uh, mortality, which had been unknown before, diseases which had no longer existing, uh, uh, now uh, returning uh, malaria, diphtheria, tuberculosis. So uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, the illnesses and deaths that were uh, preventable. And so, uh, within months of our report, uh, Canada led seven other countries in the first ever collective referral of a state party, namely Venezuela, to the International Criminal Court by state parties to the International Criminal Court. I'm saddened to say that even though our uh, report, our OAS 
uh, findings of fact and conclusions of law has been supported by similar findings by the UN Human Rights Commission and most recently by the OAS's uh, special advisor on the responsibility to protect Jared Genzer. Uh, he and Luisa Malgro, Secretary General to the Organization of American States, determined in their exhaustive report not only confirmation of the seven major crimes against humanity that we had uh, determined, but in fact uh, were condemnatory of the special prosecutor of the International Criminal Court for not opening an, an investigation, even though Venezuela was a state party to the International Criminal Court statute, even though the referral was made by seven state parties to the International Criminal Court. So no investigation was open here, but it has been open in other cases uh, where it did not have uh, the same uh, jurisdictional basis or authority or criminality to do so. And yes, now the interesting thing with regard uh, to Israel or the case read the situation in Palestine is here that the ICC uh, special prosecutor determined that she had jurisdiction even though Israel was not a state party to the ICC, even though Palestine was not yet a state. Now, I've been a longtime advocate for Palestinian statehood, but as a matter of law, it is not yet a state. And if it is not a state, it cannot confer or delegate jurisdiction to the International Criminal Court. And so what happened is that effectively, uh, law and fact were turned on its head. It was the special prosecutor imputing jurisdiction by imputing uh, or assuming jurisdiction by imputing statehood to the Palestinian Authority, which in the absence of statehood could not have conferred that jurisdiction uh, on, on the court. So an Alice in Wonderland uh, situation that we're witnessing, uh, and I say this with great regret, because as somebody, and I've been involved in the ICC from its inception, one of my first acts, in reference to my work as a parliamentarian, one of my first acts as a parliamentarian was in fact to move uh, legislation to implement domestically uh, the Rome Statute in, in Canadian law. Uh, 2002, I hosted the first ever parliamentary assembly for an international criminal court and have been engaged ever since with support for and involvement with the International uh, Criminal Court. So what disturbs me is that a court that was to be a court of last resort uh, that even deals with other matters why the case is otherwise inadmissible because of the complementarity principle and the like. But what is so disturbing about all this is that those who were, of us who were hoping that we would have an independent, impartial, international tribunal, uh, which would be the successor tribunal of last resort along the lines of Nuremberg, are finding a tribunal that regrettably has become politicized and is undermining thereby its own mandate. And the situation in Palestine is not the only example of its kind that I could give. It really calls into question the whole legitimacy of the court. And I'm just as disappointed as you. I, I studied it and had great hope in the ICC, but uh, recent events just uh, are disappointing, frankly. 
Uh, getting back to your human rights violations, you were going on Venezuela. Are there others that you want to? Yeah, two on? others that I'd mention. Um, MBS is uh, Saudi Arabia, as we're speaking. Um, you know, the, the U.S. administration has declassified an intelligence report uh, that has, in fact, exposed MBS as having been uh, responsible uh, for the brutal murder of Jamal uh, Khashoggi. Uh, I want to just say that uh, we, uh, Wallenberg Center and myself, have been uh, representing a number of political prisoners in, in Saudi Arabia, including, as we speak, uh, Raif Badawi, who was imprisoned. He's now in his ninth year of imprisonment for saying then what the Crown Prince has been saying himself the last three years, now speaking of the need for a more uh, moderate Islam, a more open Saudi Arabia. For him doing that, he uh, was charged and, as I said, now in prison in his ninth year. And all he did was put up matters on his blog that effectively were saying and reflecting what the Crown Prince himself has said. His sister, Samar Badawi, has also been in prison. Uh, she was calling uh, for the right to drive her a reform that MBS, to his credit, instituted, but then imprisoned the women who had been calling uh, for the right to drive. Or his lawyer, uh, Ray Badawi's lawyer, uh, who was sentenced to 15 years in prison for doing nothing than rep other than representing uh, Ray Badawi. And as we're speaking, uh, we have just gotten word about uh, the apparent threat to reintroduce other criminal charges against Raif Badawi, we're issuing a statement today about it, uh, because this would be shocking. Uh, not only has he been falsely imprisoned for the last nine years, but the threat emerging today of further uh, charges and further uh, imprisonment. Uh, so I would put it this way, it is in MBS's own interest, uh, apart from the injustice of Raif Badawi's case and cause to, in fact, release Raif Badawi because this is yet another tipping point situation and where he has found himself compromised already with the Biden administration, uh, MBS doesn't need another unjust uh, imprisonment or worse uh, to, in fact, buttress the existing concerns with regard to the uh, Khashoggi cover-up, murder, and the like. And just one other point here, when I talk about the resurgent global authoritarianism having been accompanied by backsliding of democracies two and a half years ago, uh, the then Foreign Minister of Canada, Christian Freeland, tweeted a call for the release of Raif Badawi and his sister, Samar uh, Badawi. What happened is the Saudi authorities erupted in fury ejected the Canadian ambassador from Saudi Arabia, recalled the Saudi ambassador from Canada, suspended all trade and investment with Canada, recalled 15,000 Saudi students studying in Canada, really a self-inflicted wound. Why I'm saying all this is not one democracy came to Canada's defense. And two months later, we had the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi. In other words, one can always draw a straight line between the silence of the democracies enabling 
the Saudi authorities, who then went ahead and engaged, engaged in the brutal murder of Khashoggi, believing that they could do so with impunity. Uh, now we're seeing that the impunity is catching up in the Khashoggi case, and I would hope they would not be embarking on any criminalization regarding Raif Badawi, because it will catch up uh, with the Saudi authorities if they purport to do so as well. A final case I'll mention is uh, Putin's uh, Russia, where we know about the recent uh, first poisoning and then arrest of Alexis Navalny and uh, the arresting of journalists and members of the opposition who've been demonstrating uh, in protest against Navalny's uh, imprisonment. What is not as well known is that uh, in the last five years, the number of political prisoners in Putin's Russia has increased sevenfold. And so uh, Putin's Russia is another priority on our agenda. And we've taken up, for example, there too, the case of Anastasia Shevchenko, who became the first uh, political prisoner to have been arrested under Putin's foreign registration law, which was supposed to be targeting NGOs from abroad. That was bad enough. In this instance, the NGO she was heading was a Russian-based NGO, and she has nonetheless been charged under that law. So these are the five uh, of the resurgent global authoritarians and the political prisoners looking glass into them whose cases and causes we've been taking up. It's very sobering to speak to you. I mean, it, it gives a lot of perspective and makes me realize how lucky we are sitting here in a first world country with the freedom of speech and the freedom of movement. We have all the freedoms, um, you know, running a business here and uh, these places in the world don't have the luxury that we have. And I'm just thinking over here, what, what could lawyers, us lawyers do? You talk to law students. I'm sure you hear this question all the time. But what could we do to contribute to the cause and make the world a better place? Well, you mentioned an important point, and that is uh, we do live in a democracy. And so we have the freedom to take up uh, these cases and causes uh, without risk, unlike the political prisoners that I've mentioned who are putting not only their uh, livelihood, but indeed their lives on the line. So in effect, uh, it's our responsibility, if I can put it that way, to speak on behalf of those who are striving to be heard, to bear witness on behalf of, of those whose testimony is being uh, suppressed or hidden, to act on behalf of those, as I said, who are not only putting their livelihood, but their lives on the line. And I think we can join uh, in taking up uh, these uh, cases and, and causes. In other words, what I have found, as I try to share with you, is that this critical mass of advocacy can bring about uh, release of political prisoners. We can, you know, unmask and expose uh, the massive human rights violations that are taking place. And, you know, uh, when I look around in the world while I've been describing uh, to you, you know, terrible cases of repression and mass atrocities and the Uyghurs keep coming to mind. At the same time, you know, I feel uh, encouraged by the brave people who are putting themselves on the line. Those who are protesting in, in Belarus, uh, for example, those who are, as we meet, those who are protesting in 
in, in Myanmar, uh, those who are uh, protesting in, in, in Venezuela. In other words, and I have to say, the more I look at these protests and the more we're engaged with them, more and more you see that there are women who have emerged at the forefront of these uh, protests. Um, and I just mentioned Venezuela as a case there of a courageous judge, uh, Judge Maria Lourdes Afiuni. She, some 11 years ago, uh, acquitted a political prisoner in Venezuela. As a result of that, she was uh, herself arrested, brutally tortured uh, in detention, where she still remains in uh, detention. And after her 10-year imprisonment was to have concluded, uh, they brought new charges against her of, quote-unquote, spiritual corruption, an invented uh, charge. Uh, she is a real looking glass into the assault on the rule of law, on the independence of the judiciary, on human rights in Venezuela. Why I say that is because uh, what has become known as the Afuni effect has been used to intimidate other uh, judges, other uh, witnesses, and the like, threatening them uh, that the, you know what happened to Judge Afuni? That could happen to you. And I'll give you just one example. Leopoldo Lopez was a leader of the Venezuelan opposition. Uh, he too was falsely charged and imprisoned. We were holding hearings, our Organization of American States legal panel uh, in Washington, and a woman testified before us, a judge, Renata Tobar, and she said she had been ordered, ordered by Maduro to issue a false arrest warrant against Leopoldo Lopez on pain of the Afuni effect. In other words, if she did not do so, she would suffer the torture and detention and abuse that Judge Afuni. We then had Franklin Neves, the special prosecutor in the case of Leopoldo Lopez. He also escaped. He also appeared before our inquiry, and he said he had been ordered to issue false charges against uh, Leopoldo Lopez, lest he too end up with the Afuni effect and so on. So the Afuni effect has become a metaphor for intimidation and assault, uh, an assault, as I said, on the rule of law, on the independence of the judiciary. So we should be taking up the case of Judge Maria Lourdes Afuni. We've now made representations. We recently have taken up her case uh, and we're utilizing all the UN special procedures for that purpose, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, the Special Rapporteur on the Independence of the Judiciary, and the like. So lawyers, young lawyers, you know, can involve and assist in the drawing up of these uh, legal proceedings, in the filing of these uh, complaints, in unmasking and exposing these human rights uh, violations uh, through evidence gathering and, and the like. In other words, uh, there's no shortage of things that need to be done. Uh, what we do need is those uh, who can make themselves available uh, and get involved in the trenches of human rights. Now, I'm not saying that everybody and most people, there are not jobs for them to be available, let's say, working with human rights groups and the like. But I'm saying the same way that we all get involved in 
one form of pro bono activity or another. One effective pro bono work can be take up the case and cause of a political a prisoner. I've named five today uh, whose cases and causes uh, we can join in. And through uh, the looking glass of those political prisoners, help unmask and expose the human rights violators. And together, we can bring about justice for the victims and accountability for the human rights violators. You know, in light of the slow wheels of justice, I'm wondering if you're optimistic about the future or hopeful. Well, I, I'm an optimist uh, by nature. And so I do believe, um, you know, as Martin Luther King would say and others that the uh, arc of justice ultimately, you know, bends towards justice. And I, but we have to help uh, the bending of the arc in the, purpose and pursuit of, of justice. So I'm optimistic because with all the human rights violations that I mentioned, uh, I see more and more courageous young people, you know, willing to uh, take to the streets and, and defend uh, these rights and put themselves on the line and confront uh, these authoritarians. That's why I say from the comfort of our uh, democracies, uh, we can try and join with them. I also remember Turner's motto that it it's also about uh, in what we say, or more importantly, in what we do, we make a statement about ourselves as a people. We make a statement about ourselves as people. And that has, holds true for democracy as well. It does not, as he put it, Turner, again and again, he would remind me, that democracy does not continue by accident. We have to work at it. And so it's a convergence both of working in the promotion and protection of democracy at home and working in confronting the global authoritarianism and injustice abroad. And let's remember these political prisoners are really uh, going down the line for the values that we hold dear. I'll never forget Sakharov. And, I'll, and on this particular point, when I met with him, he said, you know, that the trial of Anatoly Sharansky is the trial of human rights in the Soviet Union. That his trial is the attempt by the Soviet Union to imprison human rights by imprisoning Sharansky. And then he added the words I never forgot. He said, remember, he said, Sharansky is each and every one of us. Sharansky represents us all. In other words, the universality of human rights and why these political prisoners are standing up for the things we care about and therefore we need to be there for them. That's beautiful and like I said your, your life's work has really made a difference. Um, one, one of the most influential uh, lawyers and careers uh, I've seen. Is, is there any bit of general advice you'd like to leave the younger generation of lawyers, any general advice to law students that uh, you can maybe end on? Well, maybe the uh, quote that uh, the late Robert Kennedy used to invoke from Bernard Shaw just coming uh, to mind that some people see things as they are and ask why. I see things as they might be and ask 
why not? I think young people can be uh, change agents and they can bring about the world we'd like to be. Beautiful. And uh, I look forward to doing my part to contributing towards a better world. And hopefully the listeners of this podcast and your followers, so to speak, will continue your mission and uh, make the world a better place. Thanks. I just have to tell you that the, at Rao Walbert Center for Human Rights, we have a wonderful cohort of, of young people. And that's what also uh, makes working with the Wallenberg Center so inspiring. We have people like uh, Brandon Silver, who's our director of policy and projects, and he's at the forefront of these struggles that I've been mentioning. We have Yona Diamond, who's our uh, legal advisor, and he's at the forefront of preparing these legal uh, cases. Uh, we have uh, Judith Abitan, who's our uh, executive uh, director, who involved in the framing of the agenda uh, our organization. Uh, we have my daughter, uh, Gila Kotler, who's been herself a pro bono uh, lawyer, etc., cetera, um, who's gonna be uh, joining us soon as well. And we've got a wonderful board, uh, a wonderful uh, group of uh, young people who are volunteering as interns and the like. And so that makes uh, the Wallenberg Center an inspirational place to be every day. And those who might want to join us or find any other way to do so, uh, we can to get back to my father and mother's message. You know, we can pursue justice every day. Beautiful. Well, it sounds like you've got a great team and you're making a great difference in the world. And uh, I, I'm going to donate some of my pro bono hours to the Royal Wallenberg Center. And uh, like I said, it's the most important work you can be doing is providing others the freedom that uh, we all deserve and uh, standing up for uh, democracies and all our important values. So thank you for your whole career and for the work that you continue to do. It's really a source of inspiration to us all. Thank you, Abby. It's been a pleasure uh, talking with you and conversing with you. And let me tell you that we will welcome you with outstretched arms whenever you're able to find the time to, to join us. Fantastic. Thank you. I look forward to it and uh, I'm sure we'll be speaking more again if that's the case. Absolutely. Wonderful. And stay safe and healthy. You as well. Bye for now. Take care. Bye-bye.